following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you have your Bibles with you today, we're looking at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And um, I'm actually really excited to be here today. And I feel like I say that every time. But I think part of it is because I get so much time between messages, between times that I come up here to preach, that it's like I'm actually really, really excited and, and, um, and glad to be able to share the word with, with you all this morning. Um, back when I was in college, I remember my college pastor, and I don't know if you guys have had experience with this, but some of the pastors, Dr. Steve was actually really good about this, uh, not sharing like the same story too many times. But if you've ever been in a ministry where you feel like the, the pastors use like same stories for like every other month at least, right? Like there's at least that one story that just keeps on coming back up over and over and over again. I remember this one story that my college pastor shared with us many times over like the five years or so that I was there with him. And it was a story about when he was on a mission trip one time, and he was um, with these with a group of missionaries, and they had this one once-a-year prayer meeting. He was working with these underground churches, and once-a-year prayer meeting where they would go up into the mountains, and everybody kind of knew that at this day, at this time, that they would gather there together with all these underground churches, and they would pray together once a year. And on this particular day, when he was about to go up there with the missionary that he was staying with that year, he... Um, they realized that the forecast was, was not good for that day. So there, were these, uh, there was a storm that was supposed to come through, and so they were worried about it. And so a couple of the pastors had gotten there early, and about an hour before, they were sitting there, they were praying, they were saying, like, man, if, if, if this storm comes down the way that they said it's supposed to, then not a lot of people are going to show up, and we're not going to have a gathering like this for another year. We really hope that we can have this. And they started seeing these storm clouds rolling in. And so they started to pray. They said, God, we want to be able to gather here together to pray today. And we know that if, you know, if, if this storm comes the way that we think it's going to, that it's just not going to happen. People are going to stay home. People are not going to be able to make the trek up here. So they started praying, started praying, started praying. And then my pastor told us that when, when they started to pray, they all closed their eyes and then they opened up their eyes and they literally saw from this mountainside the storm clouds like parting ways, right? Like it was like this this these dark clouds are coming, and then all of a sudden there was this stream of blue sky right in the middle, and it started to split across the mountain. And like I said, I'd heard this story so many times during my ministry there in college, and I remember that every time I heard that story, my response to it was a little bit different. Sometimes I would hear that story, and I would be so inspired and moved and say, like, man, God is so good. He is so awesome. That's the kind of God that we serve. I'm so excited to be, be able to get back out there and do more ministry. And other times, I would sit and question whether any of the details of that story had, had kind of morphed over the years, right? Like, it, you know, when people tell stories over and over again, they get a little bit more exaggerated. Sometimes I would sit and I, I would wish that I could meet somebody else who was there that day so they could corroborate this story. Like, did that actually happen that way? You know, or is he kind of making this up? Or is he making it sound like better than it was? Sometimes I honestly would just feel discouraged hearing a story like that because I couldn't remember personally witnessing or experiencing something that was that clearly an act of God and a response to prayer that immediately. So as we open up Scripture today, I want to ask you all, when you hear a story like that, what is your response? Where does your heart go to 
when you hear about these miraculous workings of God in our world. And I think it points to what our conception of who God is and how he operates. What are your expectations of God? A few weeks ago in uh, Dr. Steve's sermon series right now on idolatry, he mentioned that in a lot of his interactions, Jesus wasn't asking people about what they knew or what they understood, but he was asking them about what they want from him. And I think once we figure out what it is that we want, we also need to ask ourselves, do we actually have the hope that God can deliver on those wants? I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads with me before we read this passage and then we dive into the word today. God, we thank you so much for being a God who gives us your word. Sometimes, honestly, we uh, read it and we can read stories in it of your work and the ways that you've um, broken into our broken world and that you've worked your miracles. You've shown up in ways that were unexpected and, um, and miraculous. And God, honestly, our, our hearts sometimes are, are um, slow to believe, slow to hope that we can see and experience that same kind of power in our lives. God, I pray for all of us that are sitting in these pews today that, um, that you would renew that hope for us. That you help us to see the story of this lame beggar who was healed. That you help us to see the people in the temple who, um, like we often are, were slow to believe. And that, Lord, that we would find that hope again. That we would be able to look at it and say, man, our God really truly is a good, miracle-working God. Father, we pray for your, your word to convict our hearts today. We pray that all the words that are spoken today, that, would be, that they would be yours. God, that if there's anything that I say that distracts from the gospel or from your work that you want to do, Lord, that you would let everybody here just forget all of that junk. <laughs> Father, let us hear your voice clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. We're just going to read the first half of this passage first. We'll talk about it a little bit and then finish up with the second half. So in verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. In the first part of this passage, there's this man who was lame since birth. And the way that the story is told, it's pretty clear that this was his daily routine. It says that every day, basically, that some of the people that were walking into the temple for this, at this hour of prayer would lay him at the gate and that he would ask for alms. 
Everybody knew to expect him there. He knew that he could ask people for alms and that he was hoping to just get enough to survive from day to day. Well, there's a tremendous irony, something sad, about seeing a man sitting at the gate to the presence of God, hoping for nothing more than a few scraps from passers-by. He had clearly lost hope for real healing and become convinced that the best his life was ever going to get was for him to receive a little bit from these, guys, these people that were walking into the temple. But in that moment, at that gate, that day, God met him there. And while he wanted to avoid the eyes of the people that he was begging from, Peter and John stopped intentionally that day. And this was the first physical healing miracle told in the book of Acts after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they had seen the same person every day at the gate over and over and over again. But they saw this man in a new way that day as well. And that day it says that Peter directed his gaze at the man and so did John. And then they said to the man, look at us. But even when he looked into their eyes, the way that the story is told, it leads us to believe that he probably didn't hope for anything more than just a larger sum of money. He probably was thinking something like, nobody ever really wants to look at me any more than I want to look at them, right? And we've all had this experience where somebody that we see on the streets asking for money, and you know that if you make eye contact, it's just going to make it harder for you to say no. And so when they say, look at us, he's probably sitting there hoping like, oh, I'm going to get something from these people. They're going to give me something. So he looks up. But Peter tells him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he helps him up to his feet, and he leaps and walks and praises God as they walk into the temple together. And honestly, this was probably the first time that this man had ever been in the temple of God. This is the first time that he was able to enter into the courts and not have to sit on the outside. It was something that was so radically different and greater than anything that he would have ever imagined in his whole life that he would get to experience. And church, I want to say to you today that God wants to give us also a new life. But we usually, like this beggar, just want to get enough to get by in our old ones. This man wasn't just given enough to get by and to live on, but he was given the ability to get up and to live a brand new life. We're going to jump now to the second half of this passage, verses 11 to 21. And so after this miracle, this guy was healed. He was dancing through the temple. And it reads in verse 11, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw, saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, 
and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So witnessing this miracle of this lame beggar that they had all seen, they knew, they recognized his face, seeing him being able to stand, entering into the temple with a restored body, the people in the temple who were there to worship God that day, they were amazed and astonished. But their reaction was to credit this miracle to human abilities or to human piety. I would say that we also often believe that when people experience the miracles of God, it is because of their abilities or their piety. When I hear that story from my college pastor, I think, man, those missionaries must have had such great faith for their prayers to be able to work that sort of a miracle where they could see those clouds parting. All of us have had somebody in our lives who we believe had an extraordinary intimacy with God. Maybe that person that you think of is somebody that's from our church. Or maybe it's somebody that you think of from the past. Maybe it's yourself from your past. And in some cases, we admire them for it. And in other cases, we think that they're a little bit crazy. And most of the time, it's somewhere in between there, right? Or some mix of the two. But so often, I think we really do believe that it's because of their human abilities or because of their discipline or piety that they are able to have that intimacy with the Lord. We give a head nod to God's involvement and say, yeah, of course God is involved in there somewhere. But the really amazing part is that it was something that they did or something about them, who they are, that it was so special. And then we look at ourselves and then we say, well, there's no way that I could be like that. Or there's no way that I could be that devoted or disciplined. Or I wasn't born with that spirituality in me. So I can't accomplish that level of intimacy. But who does that spiritual power depend on? Who does that restored relationship between man and God really rely on? Who actually accomplished this healing at the gates? Of course it was God. So why then do we convince ourselves that it's because of something that was special about that person that enabled them to have that experience with him? As God said um, to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not also be accepted? Right? Cain was so jealous over his brother's offering, being accepted before the Lord. But if you also do what is right, won't you be accepted? And we say, but I can't. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't know God as well. Reading the Bible is hard. It's hard for me to pray. I don't even know what to pray. And while some or maybe all of those things could be true, they don't have to be. And for every one of those people that we see as these models of faith, these people who seem to have this incredible amount of faith in them, that they also at one time were just as broken or depraved or sinful as all of us are or were. And honestly, I think that sometimes we start to go down that rabbit trail of believing that it was something about them that made them so special that we could never attain for ourselves because we want to avoid the truth, rationalize our own behavior, rationalize the way that we live. This idea of avoidance as a mechanism to be able to escape from the realities of life is something that is well documented in psychology and, and honestly all of us are prone to. This quote from Super Bowl champion coach Tony Dungy where he says, avoidance doesn't solve anything it 
It merely ser- serves as a temporary salve. It just covers over the things that we actually need to be dealing with. I thought this quote was kind of funny. It says, the key to productivity is to rotate your avoidance techniques. And I do this all the time, right? Even in, uh, even in preparing messages, I think, honestly, the sermon prep weeks are always the weeks when I'm the most productive in everything else, right? All the mess in my house that I didn't care about before, I, I really have to clean it all of a sudden this week. And schoolwork gets done faster than it used to. And I'm always doing the dishes because I love my wife more that week all of a sudden, Right? It's like when you know that there's something that you really, really have to get done, you do everything in your power to, to run away from it. It's like, no, that's too hard. I don't want to deal with that right now. So I have to go do these other things first. In my marriage, I would say it's hard work to have to work through marriage issues. Those of you guys who are married people, I hope that I'm not alone in feeling this way, and you all would agree with me. It's hard to work through the marriage issues. We get into fights, and I get mad, and then I'm the kind of person who runs away, right? I just hide, and I'm I'm quick to avoid her, give her silent treatment. And then when things get better, whether it's because, usually not because we, like, talked it out and resolved the issue, but just because, like, ah, we're tired of being mad, or I forgot what I was was even mad about, and so we're just going to be okay now, right? And then then when things get okay again, then it's like, well, we should probably talk about that, but I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make things uncomfortable again, so we might as well just ride this out until it falters again. We avoid in so many different areas of our lives. We just try to run from what we know is true. And in this passage, I think both of these people, the, the lame beggar and also the, the people that were in the temple, that they were engaged in this behavior of avoidance. What was the lame man avoiding? He was honestly probably avoiding facing the hard questions about why he was in the situation that he was in. God, why was I born lame? He was avoiding questions about God's goodness and his love. Genuinely seeking to know God, even if it seemed unlikely that he would ever get into the temple himself. He was avoiding trying to actually pursue him. He was avoiding being bold enough to be dissatisfied with the life that he had and sitting on the outside. I think maybe most of all, he was avoiding the painful wounds of disappointment over having a hope that God would actually heal him and then finding that it hadn't happened. I'm imagining that this man, I don't know, there's nothing in the passage that tells us this. This is just my conjecture. But I imagine that a man who's begging at the temple gate every day of his life, right, that at some point he must have had some sort of a hope that God was going to bring some sort of a real transformation in his life, that something bigger was going to happen But at somewhere along the way, that that hope had dissipated. That the hurt and the despair were overwhelming for him. That the self-loathing, wondering what's wrong with me, they kept on surfacing. And so he just pushed it down, pushed it down, pushed it down. And said, you know what? I'm okay with just getting enough to get by from day to day. What were, the hope, what were the people in the temple avoiding? When they were faced with this miraculous healing, instead of coming to the conclusion that the God they had come to the temple to worship, that he was the one that, who had enacted this miracle, that he was the source of this healing, 
Peter and John's response tells us that they actually were starting to point to Peter and John and say, like, man, these people must be amazing. Something about them that worked this miracle in this man. And crediting it to humans. So why? why? Why would they have had any motivation to reject this miracle? Well, for one, they knew who Peter and John were. They were disciples of Jesus. And they knew who Jesus was. He was the man that had recently been crucified who was given this most extreme form of punishment as somebody who was a heretic, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, who claimed that he was God himself. And they rejected him, killed him. And so if it was true that Peter and John, who were disciples of Jesus, in Jesus' name, had done this miracle and healed this person, that is honestly probably the scariest thing that they could have dealt with that day. That would have been the worst truth that they could have been faced with. And so Peter and John remind them that it was God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who glorified his servant Jesus. That same Jesus that you denied, you delivered over to Pilate, that this holy and righteous one that you exchanged for a murderer, the author of life that you killed, it is that same Jesus who is alive today because God raised him and we are witnesses to it. It is that Jesus in whose name this man was healed. This is like stuff from horror movies, right? Like they had this mortal enemy and they killed him and then God raised him back to life and now they're saying like he has the power to be able to heal people that are crippled from birth. Like, oh my goodness, what does that mean about me? Where, where does that leave me? If Peter and John are really sons of God and working by his authority, then we have just committed the most heinous act in all of human history by killing the one that God sent to save us. So they have every reason to avoid that truth, to run from it as far as they can. It would make an absolute mess of their clean and happy lives. They were in the temple that day to go to a nice prayer meeting. They thought, I'm good with God. But now they're faced with this truth. So they want to run from it. They want to avoid it. The crippled man avoids hoping in God and just wants to get by to the next day. And the people in the temple avoid facing their utter depravity and sinfulness. And just want to have a nice prayer service in the temple. And honestly, the scary part about all of this is that their lives and their responses look just so normal. It's sad to think of that man sitting at the gate of the temple day after day with no hope for real healing. Just enough charity to get by. But I'd say if we're honest with ourselves that this Sunday morning and most Sunday mornings... A lot of us are doing kind of the same thing. We walk into church, sitting in these very pews, punching in our spiritual time cards, listening to sermon after sermon like we're living from paycheck to paycheck, but never allowing ourselves to hope for real healing, to hope for something bigger and better, to hope for a brand new sort of a life, never daring to look up and expect more for fear that we might be disappointed again. Avoiding has become so easy because we do it so often. And just like the people that are in the temple who saw this man with a life that is radically transformed by the grace of God, when we witness God at work, we don't always turn toward God in praise. We don't always turn and worship him. Their transformation reminds us that we also ought to be transformed. 
that we should be more like that. That we ought to also have that sort of intimacy with God. But that would require us facing our own sin head on. We don't really want to most of the time, do we? We don't want to go down that rabbit hole of digging to our sin. Our lives are pretty comfortable the way that they are. And avoiding that reality that my life is not completely surrendered to Christ is easy, easier than the alternative. We come to church not really wanting to face our sins and our brokenness and the call that Jesus is putting on our lives. A few weeks ago, Dr. Jer- Dr. Steve mentioned this passage, this verse in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, in his message on retraining our love. And the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And while I affirm that, yes, one of the ways that we are called to be transformed by the power of God is to rediscover those old paths and say we want to walk in them. But if, we're, if, if I'm being honest, when I heard that, I was like, man, but honestly, the path in my life doesn't look like their path. I can barely see that path anymore. It's like when we're in the, in, in stuck in a, in a really heavy snowstorm, right? In Chicago, most of you guys have probably driven in some kind of snow like this. When it's coming down really, really hard and you can't even see the lines on the road anymore. And all you've got to go by is whatever treads the person in front of you dug, dug in front, right? And so you just have to follow in whatever, whatever road that they marked out for you. And sometimes you know that, man, these people didn't even care about where these lanes are. They're like veering off whichever way that they want to. And you're like, man, this is totally wrong. And this is supposed to be three lanes. Now we've got one. I don't know how that happened, right? And so you think to yourself, like, well, maybe I should be the one to, like, start the new path and, like, make it right again. But it just takes too much work and it'd be unsafe. So I'm just going to follow in whatever they did and dig it deeper. And honestly, my life sometimes feels that way where I've dug into those wrong paths over and over and over and over again so much that it would take so much time and energy and effort for me to be able to dig new ones. So I go down my worn paths, not the paths of old, not the ones that God wants me to be be, uh, riding in. And so if the truth... It's different from my truth that I've been living in. A lot of times just don't want to deal with it. And while we can so often identify so deeply with one or both of these camps, the final message in this whole passage in Acts 3 is not one of blame and guilt, but of hope and of grace. Because though we divert our attention away from God and we avoid him, we don't want to look him in the eye. And we don't want to hope again. We don't want to be faced with the truth that it is actually God who worked this miracle. It makes us uncomfortable when we try our best not to make eye contact. He calls us to look at him and to hope again, just like he did with this beggar. He calls us to look at our sin and to confess again, like he did with the people in the temple. And we find that when we do stir up the courage to look up, when we hear that voice and we heed it, that we find in his eyes healing and compassion. We're invited to times of refreshing from his presence. During Jesus' ministry, a lot of the healing that he did emphasized the faith of those people who were healed. But actually, interestingly, in this passage, it doesn't say anything about this man's faith before he was healed. In fact, it 
kind of leads us to believe that it was because he was healed, because he received something that he received something from Peter and John that he never hoped that he could ever get, that now he was turned to worship, to singing and dancing and leaping for joy. And the point is that though we've gotten so used to expecting so little, we try to guard ourselves by hoping for only what is humanly possible, that God enters into our world and he shatters all of our expectations, exceeds all of our hopes, and says, stop sitting on the outside of my temple and being okay with that. Look at me. Be healed. Come into my presence. To the people in the temple, the message is piles and piles of terrible news of all of their deepest fears and their worst failures. You literally killed the author of life. But then Peter tells them, look, even though all of that is true, that God knows that you are doing this in your ignorance, I know that you are doing it in your ignorance. You didn't know what you were doing. Jesus himself affirmed that from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He hasn't written you off and given up on you. In fact, all of this was foretold. It was the fulfillment of prophecies. You didn't mess up God's plans. Everything is going according to schedule. And just like the man outside the gate, even you murderers of the righteous and holy one, I want you here with me. Stop avoiding it. Stop denying it. Don't be afraid to face it. But look the truth in the eye and repent. Turn back so that your sin may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ who was appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. The suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was prophesied and it was fulfilled. And his return and the restoration of all things was prophesied and will be fulfilled. And that includes you. You know what? One of the most beautiful parts of this passage in in my mind is that it, it was so fitting for Peter to be the one to bring this news to the people that day. Because he himself had lived through this exact experience. Think of what his reaction would have been to hearing the news of Jesus' resurrection. A lot of times I think we focus on how much joy all the disciples would have had over Jesus being raised from the dead, just like he said it would. But do you remember where Peter was when Jesus was being crucified? That he was right there, and Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. And he said, no, never. All of these other guys might deny you, Lord, but never me. And three times he says, no, I don't know that man. The last memory that he had of Jesus was abandoning him, not even being present with him at the cross. And so when news of Jesus' resurrection comes to Peter, I'm imagining that if I were Peter, part of me would be really excited, part of me would be terribly frightened. That that same man that invested in me for the last three years that had shown himself to be the son of God over and over and over again, that had been teaching me, loving on me, caring for me, that I abandoned and rejected him at the one time when he needed me there. And now he's back. So what do I do? Where does that leave me? What is my standing before him? But we're also told in scripture how Jesus received Peter back, restored him. 
reminded him of his care and his love and said, you know what? I'm going to build my church on you. Just like these Jews who were given this terrible news and didn't know how to respond, Peter had to go through that same process of repentance, of being the one who had rejected and abandoned the author of life, but being gently restored back. Being called by God, look at me. Look at your sin. Look at me and find the grace and compassion that I have. And likewise, I also am only able to preach this to you today because I also am in the middle of living in it. My wife just turned 30 this past Friday, and I'm 32 right now. And actually, the transition to my 30s was strangely impactful and difficult. I don't know why it was like so like disturbing for me to be turning 30. But I think part of it was that it was the first time in my life that I really was like pushed to... Um, look back on my life and think about where I was and what I had accomplished to this point and be like, it's not all that much. <laughs> it's like 30 years is a lot of time and I don't feel like I've gotten, gotten very far. And honestly, this past weekend, celebrating my wife's 30th birthday, I was sort of reflective all over again, especially wondering as a couple and as a family where we were. And actually on her birthday... This was like us celebrating with cake after our kids went down and nobody else was there to blow out the candles. <laughs> but, um, but after we, we laid down to go to bed, I remember laying in bed for a little bit and then, and then I just said to her, like, kind of like, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> I literally said that, right? She's like, what? <laughs> I said, I mean, like, what are, we, what are we actually living for? Part of that was like me wrestling through this passage and thinking about what I was preaching on this Sunday and thinking, what is it that we're actually moving toward as a family, as a couple, as individuals? And I shared with her that I think that we've moved too far toward this realism and have stopped hoping for more from God, have stopped believing that there was something greater that he is calling us to. And if I were to point to one thing that I think that it is the hardest for me to have hope for, in all honesty, it is my own little family's culture. Because I remember when Connie and I first got married, that I had this idealistic idea of like, or vision of, of, of a marriage that is Christ-centered, that as somebody who was going to be going into ministry, and she knew that I was going into ministry, that we just tied the knot and we were committed to one another, committed to our ministry, and saying, like, okay, we're going to wake up in the morning and do our devotionals together. We're going to share and have deep times of journaling and reflection and prayer. And we're going to bless one another. And literally happened for, like, one week in our last five years of marriage, right? And it's like, this isn't the way that I thought that this was going to go. And part of me sometimes still really wishes that we would have a deeper culture in our family of being able to engage in family worship and not have it be so awkward when I say to my kids, like, hey, can we just sit down and pray together? They're only three and one. They don't really know what that means quite yet, right? But, but to say to them, like, sometimes my, my son will come to me, and we've, we've tried to instill in him when he's afraid to go to sleep at night because it's dark and he doesn't like when it's dark, he doesn't like to be by himself. We say, Grayson, you know that Jesus is always with you. And so, like, these days, we've been sleep training, and he's, like, he'll, like, be crying, like, oh, I don't want you to go. I don't want you to go. But Jesus is with me. I'm like, yes, Grayson, Jesus is with me. 
always he's with me. Like, yeah, Gracie, he's with you. But we know that in, in our own hearts, we're like, yeah, okay, fine. Jesus is with you. Okay, 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 we get it. Yeah, yeah, he's there. Can we pray one more thing? Like, Grayson, we don't need to pray about this. It's fine. And I wish that there would be times when we would get together and I could say, like, man, this is something that I've been reading in Scripture. I really wanted to share with you. And just have time when we can share with one another and bless one another through it. And honestly, over the years, I've kind of realized that I've given up hope on that. I said, man, that's just not realistic. That's not what real marriage looks like. That's not what happens in the real world, that we're busy, that things change, that our hearts are not always there, that we've already had too much brokenness in our relationship, that we've, we've uh, burned too much of our relational capital for us to be able to push for something like that, something radical. But honestly, that's because I've just been so focused and centered on what is possible with just my human abilities and piety. But I've been so challenged this week to say, what is it that God could do in his grace, by his power, if I were to open my life up to his transformation? Could God not make a person who had never been able to worship him, never been able to physically enter into his presence, if he could welcome him, if he could restore those legs that had never been able to walk, how much more could he restore our marriage, restore our family, build up a new culture that has Christ at the center of all things. And I'll tell you right now, church, that in light of this message, that my hope is for God to do that work, to want it again, to not be afraid of wanting it again. I want to stop running away and hiding and avoiding the truth and run through the temple leaping and worshiping and praising God the way that that lame beggar was. And so for all of you, if you were to receive that sort of a radical healing from the Lord for one area of life, and have your life so radically transformed that the people that see you day in and day out, just like this beggar who had been at the temple gate, if people could see you and say, man, we know that person, but we don't really know that person, what happened here, and stand in awe and amazement, what would that area be? What part of your life is waiting to be surrendered? to his grace, to his miracles? Do you still have a hope that our God is actually able to do those kinds of works in our lives? Are we willing to step out and ask him for that today? There's actually a third group that shows up on the scene in this passage in Acts chapter 4. And they arrest Peter and John and put them on trial the next day. And you probably could have guessed that it's the same religious leaders that had been enemies of Jesus during his ministry as well. But maybe the most encouraging part of this passage is that because of God's gracious healing of that hopeless beggar at the temple gate and his gracious call to repentance of thousands who had denied and rejected Christ and called for his crucifixion, who had murdered the author of life. In Acts 4.4, we read this. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and they, the number of men came to about 5,000. That in this experience of Peter and John preaching at the temple. And about 5,000, just the men, and additionally women and children who were there, were brought to faith, had their lives also radically transformed by the power of God's, God's grace. Some of you here today may be, um, 
maybe here and see me up here preaching and hoping that I'll give you something that will just get you through the day. Enough for this week. That I'll impart some sort of new knowledge or wisdom that will unlock a new level of peace for you. Some may be just hoping to have a nice, uneventful worship service that doesn't stir up your life too much. But like Peter and John, I don't have money to give you. I don't have a ton of wisdom to give to you either. But what I have, I give. And that's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring real healing, real comfort, real relationship and intimacy with him. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Let's pray. God, we do confess that so often our sights are set so low. That coming to church on a Sunday morning has become so routine. That we've gone through too many ups and downs in our own spiritual lives for us to really allow ourselves to hope for that much more. that we've convinced ourselves that it's safer and better to be realistic than to be too optimistic or idealistic. That even when we see your hand at work, that a lot of times we don't credit it to you. Part of that is our fear of what that would mean about what we're being called to. That man, if if God actually is real, if he's actually at work in this world, then my life needs to look a little bit different than it does now. Maybe radically different than it does now. That my attentions, my desires, my hopes have become bent and have strayed. God, we pray for you to restore to us a hope of your healing work in our lives. God, would you give us a um, faith to be able to see um, our lives the way that you see them, to be able to hope for the things that you hope for for us. God, that it wouldn't just be a wishing that something would happen, but Lord God, that when we see our Lord Jesus Christ, the love that you have for us, the death that you died for us, the resurrection from the grave, the victory over sin and death. God, that that would give us a hope, an assurance, a a certainty that you are alive and well, that you are active in our world, that you long for us to have lives that are so radically different from the lives that we once lived. God, would you move us to act, even when it's hard? God, help us to to plow new roads, to stop going down those same tracks just because it's easy. 
But Lord, we know that we're going to need your help. We're going to need your power. It's going to be by your grace. It's not going to be because of our power or our piety. But Lord, because of you. So Father, help us to depend on you. Teach us to stop relying on ourselves. And to count on you to accomplish all of that for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.